This is podcast number one from the Cranbrook Academy of Art Design Department for the week of October 16th. Hi, this is Elliot Earls. I am designer in residence at Cranbrook Academy of Art. The name of the program is In From The Outs. Each week, we'll attempt to provide you with a window into our world. We'll have conversations with visiting artists, guest lecturers, and current and former graduate students. We'll take a look at some of the work being done in the studio. I'll occasionally talk about my own work, and of course, we'll answer your emails. Please note that this is an enhanced podcast. If it's not already visible, click the Show Song Artwork button in the lower left-hand corner of the iTunes window to reveal the artwork viewer. Be sure to check the top of the artwork viewer and make sure it says, Now Playing. If you find it says, Selected Song, just click on the text once and the artwork viewer should instantly change to Now Playing mode. You should now see artwork we created specifically for this podcast. The images in the artwork viewer window will change to illustrate what we're discussing. I'm in my studio this evening and joined by Jessica Helfand and William Drentel, who are partners uh, in Winterhouse, a design studio in Northwest Connecticut. Uh, Their work focuses on publishing and editorial development, new media, uh, work with cultural institutions, uh, education and literacy projects. Uh, Many of you may know that Jessica was previously an adjunct professor at New York University's graduate program in interactive telecommunications. Uh, She's a thesis advisor or a thesis critic at uh, Yale School of Art. She's the author of several books. She's received her BA in architectural theory and her MFA in graphic design. Um, Both of those degrees were from Yale University. Bill, on the other hand, uh, was a principal of Drentel Doyle Partners until 1995 in New York City. He's co-editor of the three Looking Glass anthologies of critical writings on design published by Allworth Press. He's president emeritus of the American Institute of Graphic Arts, a trustee of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, and a fellow of the New York Institute of Humanities at NYU. I invited Bill and Jessica to spend uh, three or four days with our uh, design studio for a number of reasons. I actually met uh, both Bill and Jessica when I was giving a lecture in a workshop in Maine. Jessica was also lecturing, um, and when she was discussing her work, I, I realized that although the manifestation of her work is quite a bit different from the type of thing that I'm doing and probably most of the graduate students in our in our department are doing that at, at the core level there seemed to be a deep similarity in how in the in terms of how we approach design um, and then m- many of my graduate students have heard me talk uh, quite a bit about issues of entrepreneurship and how much I value the ideas uh, of being an entrepreneur and being a successful entrepreneur uh, and um, Bill, in my mind, is uh, as uh, an archetypal designer, as uh, as entrepreneur. Um, as a slightly younger man, I stood in awe of Bill's acumen with Drentel Doyle Partners. So it's really great to have them here, and um, I'm looking forward to having a conversation about their impressions of uh, of the Cranbrook uh, studio over the past three days. We're also joined this evening uh, by Sasha Tachalovsky. Sasha is one of our first year students who, among other things, has been working on the, the podcast. So uh, welcome, Sasha. Thank you. I've asked Bill and Jessica to reflect on their 
uh, three or four days here in the studio and I thought we might be able to have a uh, conversation about their impressions and uh, and their thoughts um, concerning the type of work that the graduate students are doing and what's happening in the uh, in the grad program. So welcome to Cranbrook. Have you enjoyed your visit? We have enjoyed our visit. Yeah. It's beautiful here Good. and everyone's really nice. Well I'm glad to hear that. It must come from you. I don't know where it comes from. I, I tend to think that I'm a nasty human being. I would argue with that. I would so, have there been any themes that you've picked up on in the students' work or any general impressions that you'd like to share with us? Can I start? Sure. Don't I always? Um, I really get the thinking through making thing. Um, and I think it's to be applauded. And I think we should all be doing it. And I think they get it, which is more to the point. Um, they're all prolific makers, really, all, all of them. Uh, very fluid, very um, generative uh, from one thing to the next. Um, I was really impressed by how many people are working with sound and how sound is working not always as the cue but sometimes as the kind of secondary element but very sort of the orchestration of sound and, and image uh, I found very interesting. I do have one kind of, I wouldn't call it a concern but an observation that might come out sounding like a concern and that is I noticed in the students that I talked to um, a distinct preoccupation with content that I would classify as mythical, imaginary, made-up fiction. And, you know, I don't know that that's bad. I don't know that you can kind of qualify that as really anything at all, except that I think because there's this incredibly beautiful kind of isolated bubble here that is this world, that you know, kind of a little bit of reality wouldn't necessarily be antithetical to some of this mythical stuff. I was talking to this, about this with quite a few people today, and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe sort of take that, that material, that, that kind of imagined visual vocabulary that you cultivate, and you step back from it, and you inject one little dose of reality, a word, a moment, an item, something from the front page of the paper, a number, something quantifiable. And then you go back to that imaginary world, and you spin it out, and you amplify something. But it has some connection to something. And, you know, there's not a lot of talk about audience and about the viewer, and obviously there's a very sort of pluralistic way the work can be experienced. And everybody's also, let me just say, the virtuosity technically is pretty impressive. I mean, people move very easily from print to sound to plugs, or just they go in, they go out, things work. I was impressed by that. But I do wonder about this resistance to something tangible. And I, and I didn't know if that was a trend or intentional or. Am I the only person who's ever seen this as a problem? And is it a problem? And I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. Bill, similar impressions, different impressions? Well, one, one striking thing is just how much music is here. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And I have absolutely no idea how it plays itself out over two or three or four years. But it seems to me that it's a thing that's, you know, makes the sort of body of work, not necessarily all the students or individual students, but just the body of work is going to, you know, deal with that in ways that won't happen elsewhere. You actually mean music, not sound, right? Yeah. I mean, I was actually, I mean, it just a couple, well, first of all, you have people that are musicians before they were here. Second of all, you have people who, I mean, I actually heard people say, well, I'm not sure what we're designing until I find the music. 
which is such a totally different, I mean, the use of music by, in the history of graphic design, beyond film titles, you know, is, uh, just doesn't exist, right? So, you know, when music is the starting point, and you actually, and a lot of people are actually writing and producing and recording their own music, it just seems to me it's a fundamentally different starting point. But I had a really interesting conversation with Mike Little yeah. today about this. And I, I, we both, Bill and I both talked a lot with, with several people about music and sound. And um, I felt that my conversation with him was one of the more interesting conversations I had while I was here because it began with um, a very abstracted language, musically and visually. Um, he talked about the work he'd done before coming here, and he talked about various things. And it came out of the conversation that he'd grown up in Nashville, and that his father was a recording engineer. And I wish the conversation had been taped, because that what he said from the beginning to the end went from this kind of, I'm going to protect myself, and I'm going to show this work, and I'm not sure what she's going to say, and not that I was going to attack him, but I think, you know, he, there was this very, um, kind of sort of pre-engineered language about the work and even about the music. And when he started to talk about Nashville and I started to ask him about his family and his background, what came out was a, in his whole tone of voice and his whole body language, everything changed and then he sang me a song. And it was so fabulous. And by the end, I, mean, I spent like an hour with him. It was really, it was so fabulous because I said, you know, I really feel like you're hiding behind some of this work you did. It's really great, but it's like, where's the process? And can we extricate some of the meaning out of this? And can you explain some of it to me? And, and it wasn't just any music. It was the music that he grew up with. And he talked about his grandfather. And then he got out his guitar. And we put on headphones and he sang. And he sang really beautifully. And the music was very lyrical. And it was very melodic. And, and it doesn't mean it can't then, you know, have some mashup situation later on with some techno pop. But it was like... There was a narrative right there. There was a story right there, and there was content that was right there, and it was so rich, and it was so him. And and I mean, I hope I helped him. I don't know. I'm I'm really excited to see what he does next. But I, I thought it was so interesting. And 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 I guess what I'm saying is, with him as a, as an example for me, some of the visual work that we saw this week felt equally abstracted. And many of the conversations I think that we had with people, maybe it's because of our old age and coming in from the outside, were an attempt to extricate, not simplify and not overly clarify, but to kind of understand the process and to not have everything be this kind of flattened composite, like here it is, a fait accompli, here it is. It's the first week of school. This is what I did last year. And I was in Italy, I'm tired, and I think I'm gonna do this next. Well, you know, so it was like a lot, it was like a therapy thing. I was just sort of trying to extricate and figure out you know, what, what's next. Um, but the, 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 my meeting with, with Mike was really something. Yeah, Mike's extremely interesting and an accomplished musician. Uh, it's interesting that you picked up on that. Sasha, do you, do you have anything that you'd like to ask? I kind of want to go back to something you, you said before about fiction. And uh, one of the more interesting things about, uh, for me personally, about you guys coming out here is, is that you, both of you are very prolific writers. And I, I wanted to, to ask you how you see this idea of myth and fiction that you pointed out and how that relates perhaps to writing. Isn't that fundamentally her question? Well, let me take a step back and, and actually address something Sasha did say, which is that Bill and I have started this, um, we talked briefly in our lecture yesterday about starting this writing award. And 
as we were conceiving of the writing award, which was really just an attempt to, to fund new, young, under 40 writers to, to really shake the tree and see who's out there and, and suggest that writing is an important component to design culture. I felt very strongly that I wanted to see different kinds of writing, not just design journalism, but you know, I wanted people to submit screenplays and poems. And I, I'm really interested in language describing a different world. I was just talking to Jen about the fact that we both love radio. She doesn't watch TV at all, I watch a little TV, but I love radio too, and I was saying that you know, I've always wanted to do a radio show about design because I think there's something exciting as someone who's in her car all the time to listening to language that describes something that you then visualize. So the beauty of it is your imagination is put to work, and it doesn't have to be fiction. It can be just the power of description, the power of really good nonfiction, the power of like a really great New Yorker essay. This so, is an example of like at the bottom of Main Street in Falls Village, Connecticut, where we live, is a caboose, a red caboose with a giant Herbert Matter. New Haven logo, New the Haven beautiful logo. N over the H. So like, we all know that logo in terms of design history, but in our town it exists as another piece of, as in, like on another level of iconography. You know, so the idea of like actually writing about that or doing a radio show in which you interview people in town about it. You know, I want to do a whole caboose. series. We've been thinking about podcasting design observer, and I want to do a whole series on design and small town life. You know, the snow, I don't know if they do this in Michigan, but the snow in Connecticut, people uh, build up things around their mailboxes so that the snowplows don't knock the mailboxes over and they become these kind of itinerant sculptures, these really weird makeshift things with boards and foam and stuff, and, but they're kind of beautiful and then they're seasonal. They, they exist and then they go away. Um, the Herbert Mater logo, the, the, the cow chip contest, there's, there's many of them. But I think that, to come back to your point, I'm not against imaginary worlds. And I'm interested in the fact that there's so much of that lively imagination here because it could be, we've discussed a lot the past couple of days about this space for an avant-garde visual language to exist. So maybe there's something to that. Maybe this is, I mean, maybe a real critic, a Jerry Saltz would come in here and really spend some time and look at this and say, this is some reaction against, you know, American, the failure of American democracy. This is a reaction, this is, a, you know, they're creating a world because the world that, that they're gonna inherit isn't what they're sure that they want to inherit. I don't know, maybe there's some real cultural reason this exists and I shouldn't be critiquing it, but trying to understand it. What about a, what about a uh, reaction to the actual environment itself? As an example, if we look at the ceiling of my studio, uh, there's a mythological narrative played out in five panels, uh, hand-painted on the teak wood of the, um, the history of fiber arts. And once again, it's, it's actually, it's mythological. It's not just simply fiction. Um, so it's almost as if myth and symbolism, uh, uh, the importance of myth and symbolism, are woven into the very fabric of, of the Academy. Uh, as you know, we're, we're, in my, we're currently in my studio, which is on the left-hand side of the beginning of Academy Way. All of the artists uh, and designers' uh, studios are on this street. At the end of the street, we find, um, we find a sculpture of Jonah and the whale. Um, encoded in, in, that, in that sculpture um, is a birth narrative. It's a very graphic sculpture of Jonah being spit from the mouth of the whale. Um, and um, uh, extremely uh, graphic articulation of, uh, of the myth, uh, Jonah's perched on the tongue of the whale being spit from, uh, from its mouth. 
um, it's as if the mythological importance or, or myth itself is, is, is um, the basic fabric or part of the basic fabric of the academy. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we talk about is that that, that sculpture is, is fairly compelling. And one of the ways that we're, we're thinking about myth is that when, a, when an average person or even, even one of the artists at the academy or a designer at the academy looks at that piece, they might not instantly recognize on a very sort of cognitive uh, frontal awareness uh, level that what they're looking at is a birth narrative. Um, but um, one of the ways that we've come to understand this is that, uh, that that may be one of the reasons why the piece is actually so compelling. And uh, I think I mentioned that the grade from, um, from the beginning of Academy Way to the sculpture itself is six feet, which is the sort of ideal portions of the human. So. The actual architectural setting itself uh, deals with myth in a way that's very structural and I think is very similar to the way some of the students here are, are, are attempting to deal with it. You know, I think it's interesting to embrace it and acknowledge it and maybe it's part of the sort of, you know, um, national fever here. <laughs> but I would maybe take issue with one thing, which is that, all right, uh, let, me, let me just say this first, which is that we, um, for reasons I won't go into, visited a, a Rudolf Steiner school this year, a Waldorf school, uh, and learned a little bit about Waldorf education, which our children, we felt, were a little too late to enter into because it's so radically different from mainstream American education. But it's all based on understanding myth. And so all of the study of history and of language is based on understanding myth, and they, they, you know, they, then they start to separate in terms of you know, what the Norwegian myth is and what the Egyptian myth is and what the Western culture myths are. But it kind of circumscribes biblical history and literary history and uh, theatrical history and probably comes down to the, the same basic plots of evil and good that are in um, every culture. I don't see any connection to that kind of analytical thinking. You know, I'm going to say it really simply. I'm going to say, somebody once said to me, you know, virgin is one of those words that only exists by virtue of its opposite. You never think of a five-year-old virgin, right? Mm. So myth is meaningless unless we understand what the opposite of myth is. So are those the kinds of questions that are being discussed in critique? Because without it, myth just becomes this la-la land of, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be unkind here, I think the work's tr tremendous. But I just, do, I just do feel that there's this kind of suspension of disbelief that, what do you think? Okay. Um, well, the work's not like we've seen at any other school. So I think there's a kind of process, there are exceptions to that, but an awful lot of the work seems to exist in a realm of, you're calling it myth. Um, I saw an awful lot of collaging from a fairly narrow set of visual reference points. Um, a lot of it related to music. Um, some of it related to um, kind of action graphics. Uh, and it th so there's a, there's a point where when you start printing those things out as posters and you start making things out of them or you start, you know, that they start looking, you're not sure what they, 
that you get past what they looked like to begin with. Maybe is what I'm trying to say. So that you know the level at which the root that you know the exploration seems to be about those things on a, in some places on a kind of mythical level of characters in popular culture or. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also the first week of school, so that's you know. Yeah, you are you are you to a degree you are looking at. Uh, yeah. The first was, week, the first week of school. I'm wondering what your impression would be had you come at the end of last year and or and seen the, seeing some of the people that you actually know, like Steve Bowden or mm -hmm. whoever, but um, and seeing the work sort of at its fruition. Because the questions that you're you're asking are, 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 believe it or not, are questions that we in fact deal with, and I think that just even the idea of the isolation of the campus is both one of its potential strengths as well as one of its weaknesses. Right. You know, I mentioned that during the Gulf War, I, I was a visiting artist, uh, gave a lecture and a workshop at um, Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and the students, the undergrad students, were were um, were organizing uh, protest protest marches, and and uh, you know, you come back to Cranbrook, and I'm not going to suggest that nobody was doing politically motivated work, but the the spirit of the work was completely different, and you know, to a degree, I think that that's maybe. Uh, was well, why to come here in a way. It's a monastery. So one of the, you know, I think one of the, the most beautiful things I saw today was an animation, and it took, I mean, it's just coincidence that you told somebody to get off that fence, that gate last night. Mm -hmm. But it, the animation is based on that fence. Mm -hmm. and the reference is the fence. The, fen the, refer the beginning point of the animation is as line for, as a, you know, a line form is that fence that you know somebody else on this campus ham, ha, ha, hand hammered. Um, and I, I think that that's pretty interesting. Patrons and later curators uh, to write their captions and to write their catalogs. And if a, if a designer was analytical, the discourse of design that took place in critique was not necessarily something that had any life beyond the critique room as an isolated sort of evidentiary hearing or, or testament to the work itself. Um, designers certainly talk a lot about the marriage of word and image. Um, but it's been interesting, in my own experience, I've experimented a lot with writing without showing anything. And when I work with my students, I have varying degrees of success with getting them to see writing as another evocation of the work. Um, it often depends on the student's personal experience. It's, it's like everything's like a mesh. It's, it's all about strength of personality and who you, who you are and how you feel about language. It's a particular interest to me for students who are bilingual. And you're not the only one. There, there are several of you here where uh, I was just talking to Jen about this, about her knowledge of different languages as sketchy as it is to her gives her an awareness of how language works and the slippage between understanding in different languages and cultural understanding and so forth. Um, I, you know, I, I resist the notion that writing is the enemy or that words are the enemy or that words are the after, the thing that comes after, that this is sort of segregated thing. Not to put words, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you didn't, you, did, you, did, you, did you actually feel that here? I mean, did you feel that writing, that people perceived it that way? Not at all. Yeah, okay. Not at all. No, he asked me, the question was, have you seen at other schools okay. this? So not at all. In fact, here, I see much more, a much higher comfort level with, I mean, everybody, with no, there was no exception. Everybody was articulate about their own work. Everybody was forthcoming about discussion about their own work and very comfortable discussing it with us and with other people. Um, but I think there's a difference between discussion and writing. 
the difference between actually committing to the language that then lives on in perpetuity the same way the work lives on. I also wonder, like, if, if as a visual person, like, the, the, the designer inherently has a, has a problem with having to write about something rather than just making a poster for it. Like, mm -hmm. It seems like maybe that is uh, some fear in terms of um, the designer having to rely on, on explanations and, and captions rather than having the work stand up for itself. Maybe that is... Um, I think we all suffer from that. That is hard. Yeah. That is very hard. But it's also, a lot of it has to do with the starting point. I mean, mm -hmm. so much of a typographically based design education often started with the assignment of, you know, a, a fixed piece of language to a class in which everybody is supposed to do an exploration of that. That's not, I mean, that's yeah. not the starting point here. But it's also like, in, in they teach you to, to see it as gray. I mean, I think that's kind of an interesting right. thing. Like you're <laughs> supposed to look at the text and see the grayness of it. Like, if it looks gray, it's, it, it's fine. That, that's the way it should be, but it, it, right. it creates a disconnect from the actual text. And right. You're just typesetting it. But, instead of actually engaging. But I mean, I also think we we obviously care a lot about the or believe in the power of writing to help us as a you know culture appreciate and understand and critique the role of design. Um, being a good writer doesn't necessarily make you a good designer or a good critic. Uh, Being a good, being good with, being a good designer of language can also make you, you know, like a good designer of language, but, you know, not necessarily a good designer of other things. So, you know, and I think here that the starting point is often not, the starting point of the design work didn't seem very often based upon starting with language. No, I, I would agree. Um, Although there is, as, as we talked about in terms of the, I don't know if you had an opportunity to see the booklet that was produced of uh, two years of the, mm -hmm. the uh, reviews that were written. So there, I yeah. mean, I think there's a real emphasis, and it, it's it's my emphasis because I I, I, I disagree slightly with um, respectfully disagree slightly with your perspective um, in that I think that um, as Sasha was pointing out, a lot of the emphasis here is placed on this idea of to sort of quote Laurie Anderson quoting the Buddhist priest, there's the thing, I mean there's the thing, and there's the name for the thing, and that's one too many things. So we often utilize um, the language, and we, we place a real emphasis on writing, but it's in the interpretive process right. rather than in the generative process. And as a matter of fact, like, I talk to my students quite a bit about the idea that, and you'll find this in the American Arts and Crafts Movement, you'll find our, you'll find our Metal Smith and Residence who did the, did the gate talking about this, that there's too much faith in language, like that the object itself is this perceptual mm -hmm. vehicle, mm -hmm. it's ideas embodied, or ideas made manifest in material, or it's, um, but the idea is that, that the linguistic armature that right. sometimes props it up, it's like, okay, so I'm going to tell you now, I'm not suggesting that this is what you're doing, but I'm, I'm saying that, what we try, I try to get my students to see is that uh, now I'm going to tell you what my work is about. Now, I often say you can either, and maybe the music metaphor is coming out quite a bit, but you can either move your ass to it or you can't. I mean, you look at these, these pieces in my studio, or you look at the pieces in his studio, and my contention in my perspective is that they work on a, they will work on a pre-linguistic level. And of course, there are philosophical debates about, some people would say, well, there's no such thing as pre-linguistic level. 
but I have a bone to pick with that. So, I mean, I, I, I don't downplay, or we don't downplay the role of writing, but we don't, as you pointed out, I don't think, like, we don't use it as a primarily generative process in terms of an object that they would produce. No, but I just think, I think this is just all part of, you know, history, that the classic Cooper Union education of this 70s and 80s that led to a whole generation of editorial designers in New York was based on, you know, a, a teacher, you know, George Sadek, who instilled every project with, I mean, every project was about the typographic design of language, right? That's, and it, that was a starting point, and so it, it had its impact. So, you know, there's a different starting point here that's, you know, leading to a new generation of designers and new generation of work. Gonna I was going to say one thing and ask you something. I knew your head was going to explode with that one. What? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I hate you both. <laughs> um, got that part out. Um, I am really envious of how fearless and um, kind of able many of these students are with materials. And as somebody who didn't go to art school, um, I realize when I get stuck, I have to like go to the art supply store and buy something and try something new. And he, Bill used to make fun of me for doing arts and crafts stuff, but it really changed the way I work. And I come to a place like this and I, I found myself thinking a million times in the past three days how different a person I would be today if I had had this incredible experience to be in a place like this. And you I sat come through- here instead of Yale. Oh, I really, I, th I don't know that I would say that out yeah. loud, but I, yeah, I just, I, I'll you know. I'll take that out of the podcast. No, 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 I sat there in those presentations this afternoon looking at metalsmithing and sculpture and printmaking and sewing and yarn and fibers. And I just, these are not words that were part of my cultural history. And it's so clear that just being in a place where there's someone working in fiber 400 yards away from you is affecting the way you see typography. And in Justin's work, for example, it was so interesting and some of what Jonathan's doing, some of what you're doing, very, very interesting. So I'm gonna, having said that, you have to know my envy and respect for this stuff. But I do wonder about one thing, which is the Laurie Anderson quote, which I've heard from a couple people while I've been here. So the thing and the th name for the thing, okay. What is the relation, what do you think the relation is between that supposition and how much layering, compositing of things there is in a lot of the work we're seeing? You mean layering of language? Or layering, layering of, of things. objects? Or? I mean, is there... Is it possible? And I'm, re I'm really asking, like, educator to educator. We're all in this together. This is not any kind of indictment. On it. I'm just curious, just empirically, culturally, looking at the work. Is there a fear or a resistance of the branding, the naming, the labeling the thing, the separation of church and state, the word, the image, that, that dynamic? The Laurie Anderson quote. And how much in the work, in, you know, in Sean's work, in Cleon's work, in a lot of people's work, in, in Nick's work, the image, the thing, the, the drawing, the, the sort of metastasis of, of things that are growing. growing. I, I mean, I'm just wondering, it feels like they're on their way to something. And I'm really excited, personally, to see what that is. But it felt like a process, like, like you know, all of this is like incredible embarrassment of riches, all these things. but. Not I, I, I felt 
they were inaccessible to me in, in some cases. Some of this work, and we talked with Sean at great length about this this morning. That, but that's a question. Sorry. No, no, I, but, but I was interested in, 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 you know, when I saw sitting through their presentations today, I mean, some of this Larry and, and wondering if, you know, what would happen if, I, I felt a yearning to see more of an exposed process because that was work that they had done and they were presenting to me as a fair company, but I was really interested in how they got to that point and whether there was a resistance to a more editorial. I think you're talking about a question of quality as well. I think that a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is in fact nascent work. Like we, we, we believe it or not, we actually, in the critiques, to, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, we're discussing almost specifically what you're talking about. But I think that a lot of this stuff is is developing, and a lot of they them are a lot of the students are in fact developing with this. I see it. I see exactly what you're talking about as a primary limitation of the work. Now, I don't necessarily see it as a limitation of the work when the work becomes mature, when the work actually is working. I also see some of the limitations that you were talking about with regard to sort of almost a solipsistic. Um, perspective on myth or mythology that's sort of divorced from life. But these are the things that are sort of the challenges that when someone comes to Cranbrook that I actually bring up quite a bit. I talk about what's the social relevance of this. And you know, I try, I try to use my own work as an example. I mean if you look at the pieces in the studio, you might say, well it's the same thing, but I can show you those pieces back there and there, which I will in a moment. And they're incredibly, I think, socially engaged, very directly engaged. And one of the things that I'm trying to get my students to do, if it's in their interest, because once again, around here, the question is not what's right for me, but what's right for them. I'm trying to, do, to address some of the issues that you've actually brought up, which is I'm trying to get them to see their work in a, in a broader social context and, um, and to utilize, to, to tie the work more directly to the sort of events that are happening in our time. The other thing is that exactly the kind of uh, inaccessibility of the work is the result of working in that milieu without the maturity that's required to make the work powerful. But if you do see, the, I think, if you see the pieces of work that are clicking, which happens, happens all the time, but you know, when it, it tends to happen later in the tra trajectory, I think the work can be enigmatic and uh, can still can still be powerful. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding um, the question of how that relates specifically to language, though, you know? To me, it relates very specifically. Does it, do, do you, can you help me out here? I don't think it needs to relate to language. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's not that it's about language, it's that I'm, I, I guess I'm stuck on that Laurie Anderson quote and why and why? Because I know, I know, it's, I know it's very, I know it's unpopular. I think. No, no, no. But it's not unpopular here. No, it's not unpopular here. I mean, because as a matter of fact, one of the things that one of the things I, I you tend to you tend to attract some like uh, people, some like-minded people. And when I'm when I'm when we're going through the the uh, the recruiting process, we tend to be looking for people that have a lot of qualities that you're talking about. We tend to look. I tend to look for people and be impressed by people who have a tremendous facility with materials, who are very fluid, very free, very dynamic, and don't, um, I'm not suggesting that So what you're telling me is I never would have gotten in. Another way of saying it. Yes, you are. Just the way that you actually, just the way that you talk would have gotten you in. No, I don't think so. I believe it. So what were you saying? Well, no, I actually think it's interesting. I mean, school started, everybody goes to Venice with that project, and now everybody's back. And I mean, I think what we have saw in, you know, 
10 meetings in two days is a whole bunch of people struggling with where to, you know, where do I start now? Right. So the work we saw was in most cases either last year yeah, or, the stuff that or, they got in. or summer work even. So, but what's interesting is how many people compared to other schools we have gone to where the starting point and what we talked about today as starting points was either very craft oriented. I started folding or I started sewing or I started, you know, there was something materials based. Um, or it was music. I'm looking for the right music to start. Or I'm writing the right music to start. Well, right. 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 Yeah, I, I want to add to that that this is maybe the mother in me talking, but there is not a person in this program that doesn't have an interesting background. Not a one. I just want to say that I, I, I really appreciate you guys coming here. I thought your lecture, I've, everything that I've heard from the students, your lecture was fantastic. And talking about the kind thing, you know, the, 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 I was in the library speaking with one of the grad students, and they said they're just really genuinely nice people. And it's really refreshing to see, um, well, as I mentioned, I think to see the projects that you're involved in and how you really truly care about those those pieces and they're of, of just mind-bogglingly high quality um, and that you know you come here and hang out and and, uh, and are kind and nice and warm and you put the thumb screws to the students in a good way and so it's been it's been really really rewarding for it's us. been wonderful for us I'm, I'm really really grateful to you for inviting us and it was great that we got to spend a couple of days you know I love lecturing when we get to spend time with the students and it's not this you know me on high you on low it's we got to see their work and hear them talk and well, we were we always feel energized when we go home after. Yeah, we do. A good trip. And I don't let him come alone because I can't trust him. So. I think the two of you together are fantastic. So, um, but, but really, honestly, I thought in the lecture was, was... So thank you for having I'm changing my name to Gracie Allen. Yeah. <laughs> He's changing his name to Harpo. So that actually concludes our conversation with Jessica and Bill. Um, you may have noticed a few technical glitches in the in the podcast. This being our first podcast, I'm, I'm hoping that we get over that hump relatively quickly. I'm going to close uh, the this podcast today. I'm going to close the podcast today by playing a song. Um, that was recorded, that was written about six months ago and was recorded about two weeks ago at Christ Church Cranbrook in the acoustic space of, of the main church. Uh, this is a rough mix. Um, it was um, a song that I wrote uh, for a new body of work. Uh, it will be part of a performance piece uh, that will <clears throat> debut uh, at Detroit's Music Hall on January 28th. Uh, I believe at 8 p.m. The tickets are 10 and $12, so make sure you show up if you're in the neighborhood. Uh, it was recorded with the uh, musicians Benjamin Teague on mandolin, uh, Mike Paradise on uh, drums, and Dave Staub on bass. Yours truly on guitar and vocals. Uh, it's entitled Ohio River at Night. And the thing that I should say about the performance piece is that the performance piece is a continuation of my earlier work that includes uh, projected digital video with animations and typography, uh, spoken word poetry, bass beats. The new elements include robotic uh, drums, um, 
and uh, robotic guitar, as well as a live acoustic ensemble playing uh, some of the new music that I've written. So this is uh, this is a rough mix of one of the tracks from that song. Um, make sure um, make sure that you send us email at cranbrookcalling at mac.com and we'll read your questions on the podcast. That's C-R-A-N-B-R-O-O-K-C-A-L-L-I-N-G at M-A-C dot com. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. So enjoy the track. Thank you. 